Blue, 42. Blue, 42. Omaha. Omaha. Set, hut. Well, Paul, that really looked like it's a first down for Spooner. All right, first down. Huddle up, huddle up. Welcome to Therapist in Motion podcast, brought to you by Spooner. Welcome back to the Therapist in Motion podcast. Paul and Dan here, joined today by K2 and Becca Hibbert. Hello. Today's discussion will be on the female athlete, which is a very broad and general topic, but Becca, tell us a little bit about why and what we're talking about today. Well, one of the reasons we're talking about the female athlete is because we're very excited for the huddle coming up March 10th and 11th. And if you are not already signed up and are not able to join us in person, by all means, please sign up for our virtual registration because you can still see all of our speakers then. And we're really lucky because we have a lot of great speakers um, that are going to be talking about the female athlete during the huddle. But also, we might be talking about it because it is kind of a passion for me to talk about the female athlete, the importance of doing more research around the female athlete. And so we're just going to, like you said, we could probably talk about this for multiple podcasts, but we're going to just touch on some things that both we've learned ourselves, things we may have seen in our own experiences, and maybe get everybody who may not be interested in the female athlete or understand why it's important to really do more work in that area, maybe a little bit more invested in the female athlete. It's funny, right? You know, you talk about the need for research, and I feel like every time I see research on it, it just points out something else we didn't quite know and a difference we didn't quite respect, and then we need even more research (laughs) to understand what to do with this difference. So while we are, I feel like, finally starting to scratch the surface of that, all we end up doing is realizing how far we really need to dig to figure out what we need to take care of our female athletes. I was really lucky to go to ACSM this past year, and they did a whole section because it was the 50th anniversary of Title IX, so they did a lot about the female athlete. And what was so interesting that I came away from is that we actually don't know really anything. A lot of the research that we've even done, which is very minimal, um, just for everybody's kind of information, 9% of the research done between 2017 and 2021 on sports medicine, only 9% has been done on female athletes. But even that very minimal research, we're actually realizing some of that's not very good because we weren't taking into account different hormonal issues, menstruation. And so even some of that we're having to redo. And what's so interesting is that While we don't know a lot, there are certain things that research is starting to show us and areas that it's pointing at least to take a deeper look, ask better questions when you are seeing female athletes to really better understand how you can best treat them in the clinics. And it's extremely important because when you start looking at sports and looking at prevalence of injuries, it's typically very different injuries you're dealing with. Obviously, I'm a big tennis fan, and I can tell you if you look disreported uh, Division One and professional tennis players, the sport isn't any different between men and women. But men, low back is the most common injury, followed by lower extremity injuries. Women, shoulder is the most common injury. You know, we were just talking before today about hamstring injuries, how men have a two to four times increased risk of hamstring injuries. And there's a lot of things mechanically that could go into it, but... When we look at the sports, there's often different injury patterns, so obviously there has to be something we're looking and probably missing on the rehab, prevention, conditioning, 
performance improvement side of the uh, equation that we're just not quite wrapping our heads around yet. I like that. Yeah, definitely. Like we always say, we are trying to evaluate and come up with treatment plans for the specific individual. But maybe we are just focusing on a biomechanical component too much. But stepping back and see that gender difference itself, we are missing so much important information. So considering that is important also at the same time getting the fact. But in order to get the fact, we need more research needed. So. Well, and I can even tell you, so uh, I have somebody who's very close to me who is dealing with a lot of fatigue, and what she was noticing, she lost menstruation, which was not normal for her. Um, she was definitely over-exercising, um, and I would also say at times there's been some issues with disordered eating, and so she went and saw a physician and just you know wanted answers, like, what is going on with me? I'm getting injured more often. I'm super tired where I wasn't before. And the answer that she got was, well, you're a mom, so of course you're tired. And so what we're also seeing is when female athletes are going to physicians, physical therapists, athletic trainers, it's all of us. It's not just one group. We don't know enough about them to even continue to be curious to ask more questions. How are we not asking her, did you lose menstruation? Or, I mean, that's like a question you get all the time at the OBGYN, when was your last period? But if you go to just your... Um, family practitioner, they may not ask that question. And so, so many things were missed and she was so frustrated. She basically removed herself from the healthcare system because she's like, I'm not getting the answers I want. And basically nobody's believing me. So, well, like K2 said, we need more research. We also have to just have to be better at being curious. Why are we not asking more questions of our female athletes to better understand what is going on with them and dig a little deeper than we might normally do with maybe a male athlete that comes in because they're just having different experiences. Their bodies are doing different things. So, you know, K2, you brought up a really good point as far as like we, we need more research. Well, both of you have mentioned this point, but I am, I'm curious with what we do have right now, K2, you know, when you have the female athlete in front of you, are there certain things you keep top of mind or certain things maybe we definitely need more research upon to know how to truly address? At least we have something now to recognize. Here's some things to highlight or to cue upon to really establish, is this impacting my patient? Is there something I need to do maybe differently than the average male athlete that I have walking through my door? Definitely some research needs to be uh, done, but even before that, just like... Uh, Becca said, we need to be curious, we need to ask questions, so that even though some research may be not out there just yet, maybe we should be curious and we should ask specific questions, that we have to develop a good trust between the you know, female athletes, you know, clients too, but maybe specifically talk about their cycle of normality of their, their menstrual cycles, or what kind of like, previous injuries they had, that, even just asking those specific questions, I think we can learn more about that specific female athlete. So I'm curious, when we look at the literature, and this probably question is more towards you, Paul, what types of literature is out there that you're aware of that speak to looking at you know, injury risk during different times of their, of their cycle? And then is there anything then we need to think about related to the training during the same time periods? Great question. So yes, there is some literature out there. Um, unfortunately, the conclusion still is a little bit of more research is needed, aka other podcasts we've done, right? 
Um, but there are some very interesting results. So some research has shown there is not a significant difference during different portions of the menstrual cycle, but there is a good amount of research as well that does show there's an increased injury, injury risk often in the first half during the follicular period. That's where you see most commonly. Um, but here becomes the big challenge, right? Something kind of Becca talked on before. This is generally with regular menstruation. How many of our female athletes even have regular menstruation? What does this look like? I know my wife, Sarah, found one article that did suggest even with an irregular period or an absence of periods, you're still is when hormones are at a certain level. Again, that follicular phase in the first half. It's a lot of Fs in a row. Um, <laughs> sounds. There is an increased injury risk that can occur there. So it's always one of those challenging ones, and we were talking about this before, like, so what do you do with this in practice? There is an increased risk, but not all literature is completely consistent with this, but then if it's that long of a time frame, do you have two entire weeks, potentially, where you're not training your female athlete to the level that they need? So kind of our thought was, and I'm curious what y'all's take would be on this as well, but our thought was... I keep this in the back of my mind. I maybe don't massively change my program, but especially if I have that athlete in front of me who maybe she's coming off of her second ACL reconstruction, right? Maybe she has had reoccurring injuries. Maybe there's been something that's been a slower healing. Maybe it's a new injury, but she's been relatively slower to recover based on previous injuries or issues she's had to get back onto the field. I really want to be intelligent about how I'm challenging her. I really want to be aware of what I'm doing and I'm going to make sure I kind of build my program around how can I make her be as successful as physically possible. No different than any other athlete, but in this case, I'm saying, well, we know there's some relative injury risk potential increase here. Let's not push as hard at this time frame or let's not get into some of those um, <clears throat> you know, strong CNS challenges and the things we know are going to fatigue the body out. So I'm not going to be doing max sprinting and max strength training and back to back to back and putting her through these challenges. Maybe this is a good time to work some more of the core components and the pieces of the equation that we know are going to be safer, but it's still absolutely essential for the athlete to get back onto the field. Well, thank you for that, you know, brief summary on that literature. You know, where, where my head goes a little bit with that is, is it's kind of two directions. One is can we leverage technology, again, not paid for this, but this endorsement, but the utilization of a product similar to, to Whoop that kind of gives the individual, um, you know, a, a readiness type scale, for lack of a better word, you know, the fact that we can't use the GPS technology like a lot of professional sports use just from a cost standpoint, but can we leverage other technology that can assist with during those different phases help guide and modify training, not to say like, okay, from a reality standpoint, if we're talking about high level females in the junior high and, and, and high school levels, from a scheduling standpoint, it's not realistic to take two weeks out of every month to not play, right? That's just not reality. But are there ways that we can leverage that to change, like you said, and modify how we train and adapt, but also on the back end at the second half of their phase, is there, is there a way that we can train them a little bit harder to have them prepare and then the second thing I think about is, is, is just the general youth athlete consideration. And when they go through a growth spurt, how training is modified as they're going through a growth spurt, knowing that speed and power is going to be hard, but you know, footwork and agility and reactiveness is something that you can train. You know, and, and again, there's varying thoughts out there, but like, can we use some of that other information on when a when a youth goes through a growth spurt and correlate that somehow and, and come with the same strategy 
on the female athlete side, especially if we're talking about the younger female athletes. Well, and I love what you bring in there, Dan, and also, too, taking into consideration other things we know. Like, what else puts you at risk? General athlete preparedness, correct? So when we talk about, like, Brett Fisher, he's seen just kind of anecdotally a comparison between grip strength and general readiness for the individual. So if you know that maybe your female athlete is in this time where there might be some greater risk, you're asking those extra questions. You know, how was your sleep last night? How has the the dietary component been going for you? How is your stress? You mentioned school. Does the individual have a bunch of tests? Is this a stressful week? Are you recognizing like my athlete doesn't look as ready or as up as prepared as normal? Do I do some of the typical athlete preparedness tests to see is she ready and say, you know what, this is really not a day to push because well, literature might not be perfectly agreed upon for this phase being a greater risk. If I have three or four factors and I'm feeling like there's multiple things like this to me is a, not a hard stop, but a hard changed uh, course of action. I still got to take care of my athlete. I am still doing something, but let's do something that I feel like is going to be successful for her and most likely to build upon success for the next day or the next week or whenever that time frame comes. So to add a bit of a disclaimer, I guess here, like we also want to make sure that the questions we ask um, our athletes are comfortable with. We cannot assume that a female athlete wants to talk, whether it's male or female, to their clinician about their menstruation. So, you know, it's important, obviously, what are they comfortable with? Obviously, we got to take into account age. You know, there's certain questions that obviously the parent needs to be present for to even ask those types of questions. But also you think about when, because we don't know a whole lot about how menstruation affects what's going on with training. If you do have that information, why aren't you, if we're talking about like a return to play situation, why don't you test them in the first two weeks and see what that strength, that performance looks like, and then test them again in the last two weeks, and you maybe you might be able to even see within, once again, very small data, but you might even be able to see with that individual athlete, okay, you know what, they are maybe a little weaker, or maybe those differences that you see, you can work with their performance coach, their coach, whatever it is, with them to just be aware. We also have to take into account in situations where maybe we can't have all that information, which is okay, once again, it's about what the athlete is comfortable with, um, that you know, we often hear about the equity of sport. Are we training our female athletes at the same level? And I'm definitely going to talk about like strength and conditioning here. Are we training them at the same level that we're training our male athletes? I mean, I am older, um, but as somebody who's had six knee surgeries, three ACLs, I can tell you playing soccer, never once did anybody put me in a weight room. Never once did we go through like jumping drills, nothing like that. We're very lucky that times are changing for sure. There, we are seeing that more people are understanding the importance of strength and conditioning for our female athletes. I'd say it's still a big gap, especially in high school. But at the same time, you look at the NCAA, the famous picture from two years ago, where you looked at the weight rooms of the men's NCAA tournament and the women's NCAA tournament, and they're giving the women like 10 pound weights. Like that's what loads a D1 athlete, male or female, is 10 pounds. So you always also have to consider if you can't have those conversations about menstruation or if that's not, if you're not in the right position maybe to do that, there's also things that you can still take into account, which is training. Are you loading your female athlete appropriately? Are you going through the jumping dynamics? And some of those things that we know females may have a harder time controlling, are you doing those things? Because those things are going to be just as important as you move along the process as well. That's a great point. Even just uh, listening to what you said, I learned and came up with a few ideas. One, even just clinically, just single 
specific athlete, but you can get the tendency of the, you know, how that their strength may or may not be affected during the first and second, you know, um, uh, two weeks of period. Then if we see some type of trend, that can be a great discussion point with that specific athlete. We can educate them and so that when they go back to the actual playing, they, that can be a great information too. And also uh, return to sports. In order for them to return to sports, just like Becca said, yes, definitely they, their body needs to be loaded. So the more than ever, as a physical therapist, I feel like we have to take the lead on, as a quarterback for the rehab, entire um, rehabilitation process, to if needed, we definitely need to collaborate with great strength coach to finish that rehabilitation process. So instead of let the athletes just start playing, start going back to play, or let them decide who to see, maybe we should take the lead to guide them. Then we can, pretty early phase, we can start collaborating with strength coaches. And you bring up a really good point there because another thing that we see in research is that when we go through puberty and when we are aging, boys put on more muscle mass than girls. And I don't just mean raw overall, but when you adjust that to height, size, all those components, boys are still putting on proportionally greater muscle mass than girls. So as you are growing, women are often a little bit behind the eight ball. Often, you know, this is very generalities. Becca brings up good points like this. Not all this information always applies and everything's always applicable. Please look at the individual in front of you and don't just assume all generalities apply to this person. But assuming that they have a reason for these statistics, they're often going to find women a bit behind on the muscle mass side. Then we're not even loading them appropriately or afraid to load them or not even thinking about that being consideration. And we're just doing such a disservice to the female athlete to prepare them for performance in their sport and decreasing risk of injury in their sport. I think often too, what we see is a lot of the discussion, which there's nothing wrong with it. A lot of the discussion is around like females and ACL injuries. And I think we're missing the boat on a lot of various injuries or other things that, you know, obviously any athlete has to deal with. And one of the areas that we're seeing a lot of increased research is with concussions, because what we're finding is that they present differently in male and female athletes. Female athletes tend to have longer symptoms. They tend to have more headache-based symptoms. And a lot of times if we're being honest and from the female perspective, oftentimes that's people don't take it as seriously in the female, like, Oh, you have a headache. Okay. And what we're realizing is like, we may have sent athletes, female athletes back sooner than they should have from concussion because we weren't taking into account that while a headache is obviously still a symptom, we're not treating it. We weren't treating it probably as big of a symptom as it was for a concussion, right? Because we can write that off as other things. Oh, you didn't get a lot of sleep. Oh, maybe you're not hydrated. Oh, okay. Well, you do okay with these return to plays. And so I think it's important to remember that it, we're not just talking about knee injuries or ACLs. We're talking about head to toe. Everything with a female athlete, unfortunately, has been understudied. And we do have to make sure that we're asking good symptom questions, that we're tracking things appropriately, that we continue to ask questions that we don't, belittle might not be the right word, but like belittle the symptoms that they're telling us. Because like I said, all of a sudden research is showing, oh man, females really actually have this high rate of headache compared to their male peers. And there's still that concern with um, 
the concussions. We also know that soccer, especially with female athletes, is the, so the second highest rate of concussions for sports. Okay, well, why is that? You know, there's the studies about neck strength. Do they not have the same amount of neck strength, not train the same amount with that neck strength to cause concussion? So it's crazy if you could, as I was telling K2 and Paul, like you can really fall into a black hole with all this stuff because you can start in one area and be like, okay, if we just look at this research and we get good here, and then all of a sudden you realize, oh man, we don't know anything about this oh, we've kind of been looking the wrong way when it comes to this with female athletes. So I don't know if you guys have other examples of things that you've seen outside of kind of that, like I said, I think typically we think like ACLs, um, but I don't know if you guys have seen some other research that has intrigued you when it comes to female athletes as well. You know, bring up a, you bring up a great point, Becca, and we look at concussions and it's why it's important to do some of the research because as you mentioned, there are some of the general strength things and we do see that female soccer players tend to fire a greater number of neck stabilizers and fire them earlier than their male counterparts, which can lead to fatiguing out, lead to other things. The question still becomes, can we train them out of this? Should we train them out of this? What's the next step for them? But it's always important things to consider. And that's where sometimes, too, we can always use the information we have from certain injuries that are I don't want to say well-researched, but more researched than others. So ACL, like you said, like it's such a highly researched component. But don't forget how many things that we've seen that are factors for ACL injury that can impact other things. We know women are very quad dominant, typically, again, not always. We know that frequently the female athlete is going to land more posteriorly, so more of the rear foot calcaneal landing. Obviously, that puts the knees at risk. What else does that put at risk? Low back, SI. And we think about the weight coming through the body there. When we think of jumping mechanics, we think of, oh, the knee falling into genovalgus and you know them having an ACL rupture. But that also is going to impact all the way up the chain. That is going to impact if they're landing more posteriorly. Maybe they got some inversion ankle sprains. And we know that a, a, an ankle is going to lose proprioceptive sense towards that inverted supinated position, are they going to be at greater risk of continuing to have the ankle instability, which we also know research says turns off the glutes, which again, now we're talking about glute, we haven't even discussed the pelvic floor yet, which is a unbelievably important <laughs> topic for us in the female athlete. Yep. And we're just giving it even less and less areas to help. So sometimes I'd encourage those that are out there, maybe you have a sport that is not a common sport, or you're just a female athlete and generally isn't well-researched still look at the things that are there because I can still help you gain valuable information say, all right, what are some considerations to make for this athlete specifically that I can do to help them potentially be more successful? Or also, again, I was talking about applying other research. Common thing we might see in a female athlete, you get more of your fine arts, artistic types of athletes. So you have your gymnast, you have your ballet dancer. I mean, the ranges of motion that these individuals go through, and, and males too, just not as common potentially, but same thought there, large range of motion. And so many times people are like, oh, you're just too mobile. No, they're exactly what their sport needs. They have to have that motion. In fact, oftentimes they'll come in saying they're immobile because their needs are so much greater than the average individual or even the average athlete. We start thinking about other things in research, like if we look at strength and an isometric resisted uh, angle at different joints, we know there's about a plus or minus 40 degrees. So if I'm talking about the shoulder and I'm trying to rehab a shoulder and I've done nothing but external rotation training at about 25 degrees of flexion, it's going to translate up to 65, maybe 70 degrees, but it's not going to get me into the parts of the overhead motion that we need stability at. 
We'll take that out to your individual who has the ranges of motion through the backs, through the spine, through the hip, through all these different areas they need for, for ballet, for dance, for gymnastics, for cheer, for all those components. And think about how many ranges of motion we need to be strengthening them in. Because one thing that we know also from research is as you increase range of motion, the body doesn't just naturally know how to use muscles and stabilize muscles through there. So not only is it essential for these athletes to give them those ranges and strengths, you it's essential to make sure you're training them to stabilize and control at those end extremes. And I feel like too many therapists especially, but anyone performance side, might be afraid of going into the extremes because, no, that's too far. No, it's exactly what they need. And if you don't take them there and you don't teach them how to control it and use it, you're doing them, again, a disservice that's going to make them not able to perform or more likely to have some type of injury for their sport. I don't want anybody to leave this podcast today feeling like, oh, man, we don't know anything. Because while we don't know a lot, that is true. I want everybody to understand that over the past, I would say at least five years, the increased understanding of that we need to know more has exponentially gone up. And there are more and more people who have been honestly passionate about the female athlete for probably decades that are getting those their voices heard, but also most importantly, getting money behind research. Because at the end of the day, you can't do the research without the money behind it to do that. But I do just want to say a few things, which is, I know I already mentioned it, but I'm going to say it again. Only 9% of research recently, okay, we're not talking about in the 90s or the 80s here. We're talking about the last four or five years has been on female athletes. So continue to push that in where you work, if you work at universities, like take a look at this stuff. The good news is, is more people, like I said, are throwing money behind this type of research. So there are grants out there to make sure that we can take care of the female athlete. Also, I want everybody to remember that this is kind of from beginning to end for females. So females in their teenage years, one out of three girls are likely to drop out of sport compared to one out of 10 boys. And there's lots of reasons behind that. But two of the biggest reasons is equity in sport. So we need to continue to work on that. But it is also a lack of understanding about their own menstruation. The fact that we don't talk about it, the fact that we don't make them comfortable or breast development is a huge thing. When they have to start getting in sports bras, they get very anxious there. There's not those people to talk to. So I ask just as clinicians, sometimes these conversations are hard. And as I said, you need to be careful, obviously, about who you're asking them to. But you cannot also make them feel like they can't have these discussions. They need to be able to have these discussions with you because it starts at such an early age. And we know that basically female sport involvement equals female athlete success, successful females later on in life. So the more that we can keep them in sport, the more that we as sports medicine practitioners can be the, you know, the hope that they need to continue on is really important and, you know, support these places that are doing the research. Like I said, make sure you're curious more than anything. If the research not, isn't there, you still one-on-one -on -one with your athletes, your female athletes can be curious and ask questions. I promise you it is questions. They are not being asked a lot, even simple things of how much sleep have you gotten, which we all know how important that is. What have you been eating? I cannot tell you how much misinformation is out there specifically to female athletes about the amount of calories they should be taking in. All these conversations, and then as we talk about all the time, 
Then having the network to send these female athletes to the right place. Is there a nutritionist that can help them? Is there a physician that knows about Red S, female athlete triad, that can walk them through this process? So we're kind of the front lines. Don't forget that. Um, we will continue, hopefully, to push the research forward, but there's a lot we can do day to day. And until then, please learn from the experts. Learn from the people that are going to be at the huddle with us March 10th and 11th. Um, I'm going to shout out a conference that, once again, we're not getting any promo for. Um, it's the Female Athlete Conference. It's run by Harvard and Boston Children's. They are at the absolute, like, front line of this research. That conference is June 14th through 16th in Boston. These are the kinds of things that you want to get involved in so that we can best take care of our athletes. And Becca, thank you so much. I mean, you, you, I just want to reiterate one thing you said because you hit it out of the park there. You have to have a team. You have to have the team around you. I, I know as a male practitioner, there are times there are conversations that are not going to be appropriate or the yeah, athletes just not going to be comfortable having them. But having the resource to send them is absolutely essential. So you want that team around you. So thank you all for listening. If anyone has any questions or comments, please reach out to us at therapistsinmotion at spoonerpt.com. Otherwise, have an excellent day. Thank you for listening. Please hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app.